13. That's uh, going to be on page 1140 in that Bible on your table there. That's where we'll begin in a minute. As you find that passage, you might look at it and say, oh, I know that one, because it's one that is often used in weddings or used to be quite frequently used in weddings. Before I begin, though, I just want to kind of set the stage here. We've been talking for several weeks now about John Wesley's concept or his doctrine of perfecting grace. And this is something that we very consciously have done. And and to kind of give you the high-level view and work our way down to today, you may be surprised to find out that I knew 25 years ago that our denomination was heading for a split. A lot of us did. It wasn't hard to tell. And some people knew back in 1968 when the denomination formed by merging two other denominations that it was destined to split. So it's something that's been divided and broken from a long time ago. And so it won't surprise you then if I knew 25 years ago that I can also tell you that I knew as recently as three or four years ago that that split was just about here. And back in 2019, it was very clear to those of us who are required to pay attention to these things and charged with that responsibility that we were going to see a split in our denomination. And by the beginning of 2020, the plans were in the works to split the denomination and then the pandemic changed everything, as you know. The reason I'm telling you this is because it has been my mission then throughout my years of service as a pastor to teach Christianity in the Wesleyan way which isn't to subvert Christianity in any way, shape, or form. But, you know, as I told you at the first message in this series, I chose to be a Methodist after having been raised Catholic. So I made my choice based on what I perceived as a good way to serve the Lord and to live my faith. And uh, with my personality type, doing things methodically comes very naturally. So there's that. But... As recently as the beginning of this year, starting in January, I was deliberate about teaching and sharing Wesleyan doctrine and culture with you. And that's what's brought us to this series of messages we've called Perfect Love. And you will recall, if you've been part of these messages for some time, that we talk about Wesley's means of grace. And what we mean by that is, number one, Grace is a word that means unmerited favor. It means you're going to get something you don't deserve that you haven't earned, something that you're not entitled to. Grace is an act of extraordinary love. And so when Wesley defines grace, he's not saying anything other than that. He's just saying that God first pursues you, as Jessica alluded to, because of grace, because he loves you. And when God finally, I won't say catches you, but when you stop running, then God embraces you with love that saves and justifies you. And then he gives you new life and new birth. And all of this is a gift. It's not something you've earned or deserve. 
You're not entitled to it. It comes to you freely out of the love of God. And then Wesley would go on to say that in response to that, we experience a sanctification or we're made holy. That is, we've been set apart. We're no longer members of the human race in the same sense that we once were. Now we are members of God's family, which is why I greet you as a family as often as I do. And as members of God's family, then, we are expected to mature and grow into the image of Christ or to be more Christ-like every day. And this is what Wesley called perfecting love or perfecting grace. So that's where we arrived with this series. And at the beginning of the series, I told you that I wasn't altogether sure how it was going to turn out because I was troubled in some ways, as many of you might have been, with the idea of perfection. What is perfection? How can anybody be perfect? And how could Wesley be so bold as to say that a Christian could attain a degree of Christian perfection, any degree of Christian perfection? And yet, here we are at the end of the series, and I think I know how now. That doesn't mean that I expect to achieve it in front of you anytime soon, but maybe by the grace of God, you will see me change toward a greater Christian perfection than I now possess. And if you've known me these last five years here at Shiloh, you might say that you have seen me change to a greater level of Christian perfection or perfect love. What is perfect love? Let's just talk about that for a second and then we're going to read the scripture. Perfect love in this context, in the sense that it's expressed in scripture and in this Wesleyan idea that we are interviewing our, our, for, our founder on, we're asking him to explain himself to us, right? And, and what, he, what he would say is, is it's not perfection in the human sense where you no longer make mistakes, where you always color inside the lines, where you always perfectly adhere to certain uh, cultural expectations. You know, there are a lot of people that go to church, maybe have gone to church all their lives, that are real uh, sincere and dedicated to certain habits and traditions. And so they never touch a drop of liquor or they never use a foul word or they never dance or who knows what. There are all kinds of religious cultural traditions that we tend to think of as expressions of holiness. But in God's definition of personal holiness or Christian perfection, none of those things matter as much as love. And that takes me to this passage. In case you thought that all this time I've been teaching you Wesleyanism, you need to know right now that Wesley was just telling you what the Bible said in his particular way. And so I want to read this chapter to you, often referred to as the love chapter, often used in weddings and often used to describe relationships between a husband and wife. But the truth is, this is not about that. In fact, that waters it down a little bit. We need to hear this as a message for everyone who earnestly desires to be in love with God and in love with everything that God loves. 1 Corinthians 13, chapter one, verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So perfect love equals Christian perfection. This idea that Paul expresses to us in this chapter describes what is primarily a sign uh, or, or recipe, I guess you could say, for Christian perfection. So Wesley didn't invent this idea. He just took what he read in Scripture and helped us to find a way to methodically, systematically arrive at the destination we desire to reach. So why don't we get there? Why is it that so many people in the world of Christianity fail in this effort to reach Christian love and Christian perfection? You know, if you read this passage, it's written to the church at Corinth. And, you know, Corinth is there. There are people who uh, read the book of the letters to, to the Corinthian church and they think, wow, what a, what a messed up church. Well, I'm per personally really glad it's there because it's a, it's a messed up church like so many that exist now. The church at Corinth is a lot like this church has been and maybe will be again at times. It turns out that certain problems creep in and out of the life of the church family. And Paul thankfully addressed this tendency in his letters to the church at Corinth and we are the benefactor, beneficiaries, I should say, of his generous gift of truth and love. The problems they experienced stem from the fact that they knew what saved them and they knew that it was love that had reached out to them for love's sake and saved them, but it was love that they failed to then express to others. And the problem that they encountered was really a very simple problem that we all encounter. It's simple to explain. It's difficult to overcome. They were selfish. 
they were trying to leverage their church relationships and their church identity for personal gain. Now, we don't have a hard time imagining that if we picture, say, you know, an insurance salesperson in our midst who passes out business cards in the middle of worship. We'd say, that's kind of self-serving at a time like this. You know, so we laugh about that if we want. But, but most of this imperfect love that we experience in the local church is a matter expressed in the way that we respond to each other the way that we misidentify each other's needs or we position ourselves for the protection of our own ego or perhaps our delicacies and the ways that we are easily hurt. But Paul describes that for us. He spells it out for us. He explains the recipe for leaving that behind and moving on toward perfection. He says the reason that so many of us fall short of perfect Christian love is because we haven't grown up enough. When I was a child, I thought like a child. Now I don't. Paul's words are easily translated from his original language and there's no mis communication going on here this is why I have said to you at many times over the years that sanctification could be easily described as growing up maturing as a Christian many people will refer to themselves as born-again Christians without realizing that what that makes them is babies (laughs) if you're born again it means you're a baby It's nothing to be ashamed of. It means that you were once a person of the flesh and now you've accepted Christ's gift and you have accepted new life in the Holy Spirit and so now you are a baby Christian. And baby Christians can be 88 years old or they can be 8 years old. It's really just a matter of where you are when you arrive in new life in Christ But the expectation remains the same for spiritual babies as it does for temporal flesh-born babies. Grow up. First start with baby steps like we talked about last week. And then make an effort to cover larger distances, to perfect your coordination, to learn from experience what to touch and what not to touch and where to step and where not to step. And again and again and again, watching any baby grow and mature into a young adult person and eventually into one of us old folks, what do you see but an ongoing process of maturity? Why would it be any less of a process or any shorter of a pursuit in your spiritual development. So Paul challenges all of us not to think like children anymore. In another place he says, don't keep drinking the milk, feast on the meat of the gospel. And I hope you've learned as members of this family of faith, some of you for the last five years, that I like to dish up the meat. 
but I'll even chew it for you before I give it to you if you like. So gross, huh? But then that's what we do, right? That's what we do. If we don't think we can digest what we're receiving, then we count on someone a little further down the road than us to help us figure out how to get there. Nobody expects you to mature in the faith or to work out your sanctification alone. It's not meant to be a private exercise. It's meant to be a community shared journey. So Paul's words carry a ton of incredible nuggets of truth for us. And we want to look at that because this is the, this is the recipe. This is the recipe for Christian perfection. I have to step aside for a second and just say that, that I'm really good at following recipes. Laura knows that if she can't get home in time to fix our supper, something she really enjoys doing, and she does with a certain mastery that I can't even comprehend. She knows she can send me the recipe, and when she gets home, whatever the recipe calls for will be there. I can follow a recipe. I can follow instructions. And if you're like me, this list is what you've been looking for. So let's look at Paul's to-do list. To begin with, this to-do list is how this, uh, this love adapts and overcomes so that we, be, so that we are the people we intend to be. This, Paul's to-do list. He says, be patient, be kind. Bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. And I added, according to the Spirit. Here's why. Because patience and kindness is something we can wrap our minds around. We don't need a lot of help figuring out what that means. But what does it mean when he says, bear all things? Well, bear all things according to the Spirit. In other words, he's writing to Christian believers and he's understanding that they are operating in and, and functioning as a, as a family of faith under the leadership of the Spirit, influenced from within by the Holy Spirit. And so what it is that you bear, you bear in the Spirit. And that very source of power to bear it, to bear the burden of the gospel, what does it mean to bear something? It means to carry it, right? How do you carry your Christian faith on your to-do list? You carry it willingly. It's not a burden to you. You are glad to carry it. You look forward to picking it up every day and carrying it throughout the day. How will people know unless they see you carrying your faith in Christ how will they know believe all things believe all things do you believe everything the Bible tells you I do I understand that some of it is written in context and some of it is based on historical ideas that don't seem relevant to today but they really are universal truths 
At the heart of the matter is not a word on a page, but it is the very heart and mind of God. And so I believe that God's heart and mind are expressed to me. And how do people know that you believe that? If not, that you honor it in what you say and do. I hope all things. Well, hope is another form of belief. It's, it's a trust that the unseen things are just as real as the seen things. It's a hope in a future that has yet to be revealed. Hope is a belief in something you don't know for sure is going to happen now, but you know for sure it's going to happen. You have hope. You believe that good always comes from any faithfulness to God. Hope is a kind of joy. And it comes right before this list includes enduring all things. What are you enduring? Well, I know some here are enduring the grief that comes when we lose a loved one. Some are enduring terminal sickness. Some are enduring sorrow that comes from circumstances that are more private in nature. They're enduring a difficult marriage, a difficult job situation, a difficult financial situation. They're enduring all sorts of trouble, but they're doing it from the point of view of a faithful Christian, which doesn't necessarily make it easier, but it makes it Endurable. <laughs> it doesn't destroy you. It doesn't take away everything that makes your life matter. Hope informs you that there is more to this life than what you can see. And endurance is living as though the race isn't over, even if it be the last day on this earth for you. The to-do list is be patient and kind bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things according to the Spirit. Be patient and kind. Isn't it funny that Paul has to tell people to remember being patient and kind every day? Let's look at Paul's to-don't list. It's funny to me that it's a little bit more involved. Paul says, don't envy, don't boast, don't be arrogant. Don't be rude. Don't be an oppressor. Don't be irritable. Don't be resentful. And don't celebrate evil and chaos. My words. He says, don't envy. In the body of Christ, there can't be any envy. But there's usually plenty of it. It's easy to envy people who have more than you or seem to have a better life than you. It's easy to envy people who seem to have an easier time of it because of particular uh, physical attributes that they have and so on and so on. We, we can be envious uh, in so many ways. Envy is a, it's a form of lust, you know, it, it's... It's craving something that our flesh desires but doesn't need. Boasting. Boasting is something that 
I think is more often a result of feelings of inadequacy. Usually people who boast and brag are people who secretly don't think that highly of themselves. And so they want to try to offset that by reinforcing their need in front of others. And so they boast about what they, what they need more than anything else. But there is a counterpoint to that because there are people out there who are just plain arrogant. They don't have to boast because they're just sure that they are all of that and more. Arrogance is, to me, one of the hardest things to overcome in the Christian journey because an arrogant person has to learn they're arrogant. They have to be taken down to a place where they recognize they've been arrogant. And that's a tough one, but... Nevertheless, Paul says, don't go there. Rudeness. You know what rudeness is at its heart? It's a lack of consideration for others. Really, it's this that simple. If you're rude, it's because you're thinking more about yourself and your immediate need than anybody else. And so you're rude to people because you don't care about them. And if you look at Paul's list, you can see that in both of these lists, they are progressive. Because boasting can turn into arrogance and arrogance can turn into a perpetual rudeness and rudeness turns into oppression. And as you have often heard me say, and I believe this is right out of the heart and mind of God, the devil is always where you see oppression and chaos. And God really hates oppression and chaos. It's all over the Bible. God dealing harshly with oppressors and those who create chaos. Oppressors are people whose very nature makes others feel like slaves. Here's a good example. It seems like in my ministry career, we've run into this a lot in churches. There's always somebody who oppresses others with their temperament. And so there's just certain things you don't say around them because you don't want to pay the price for having said it around them. There are people who oppress because as far as they're concerned, we're going to do this their way or they're not going to have anything to do with it. Can you imagine this happening if there had been an oppressor on the team? It's really like that. Oppression is more common than you would think in the church. And it creates this next problem, which is irritability. You know, everybody walks around on eggshells when there's an oppressor in the midst. We're all just a little cranky. <laughs> and we spend a lot of time not knowing why, but we're just not happy. Now, I was thinking about this this morning at the start of the first service because I was thinking, boy, if your irritability is a sin, I got problems. But then I asked the Lord and the Lord said, look, if a cup of coffee will cure your irritability, it's probably not as bad a sin as you think it is. So that was... That was from the Lord. I didn't get struck by lightning. I got away with it. But there's a point. Sometimes irritability is just irritability. <laughs> I mean, and sometimes it's a nature. It's a nature and it's a form of oppression. You work it out. Resentment. That to don't is one of them that we talk about a lot. We just talk about it in different contexts at different times. 
But resentment is what happens when you're holding open an account that's never going to get paid, right? When you don't want to forgive somebody for something, you're holding open an account. You're, you're holding a debt against them that they either don't know that they owe, they don't agree they owe, or in most cases, they couldn't pay you back anyway. How could they make up for what they've done if they could? What do you really gain from being resentful? And carrying that resentment for, for years, for a lifetime. So obviously resentment is a very, very unhealthy to don't. And the last one on his to don't list is celebrating evil and chaos. You know, we do that directly and indirectly. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty because I would have to condemn myself first above all as is there times when we kind of love the chaos maybe of our enemies? Maybe we have politically divergent ideas and we see someone that we disagree with suffering and we kind of delight in it, you know? Ha! Told you that would happen. You know, it, it can be very difficult to prevent our resentments from turning into celebrations over evil and chaos. Evil is evil. And chaos is when the devil reigns, plain and simple. So there's your breakdown of Paul's recipe for perfect love. And here's my, here's my uh, recommendation for you. Practical application, we'll call it. If you understand that love empowers godliness, if you realize that, that godliness is what we're all shooting for here, but it's made complete by love, then what we're really saying is, is that we are Christians in form, as Wesley would say, this form of godliness, but without the fuel that powers godliness, the form gets you nowhere. That's what Paul was saying when he says you could speak in tongues, you could you can do all sorts of religious things and look good to your fellow religious people. But at the end of the day, it means nothing unless it's fueled by love and love isn't that complicated. Love is making your motivation about others and who more importantly than God. Well, no wonder what Jesus said that if you wanted to sum it all up, you could just say this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. If you poured yourself into loving God, and what does that look like? What does love really look like in your world? I'm pretty sure I can see people who love others in this room. Somebody here has somebody to love. Everybody here has somebody to love. And when you love them, what wouldn't you do for them? I made the joke at the first service, Bethany that, and, and Nathan, that, that I know way more about the Marvel universe than I ever would have bothered to learn on my own for love's sake. I let them tell me everything and anything they want to tell me about Captain America and the Hulk and, and all these other Marvel characters from these 23-something Marvel movies that we've watched together 
over the years, and I watched them because of love. I'm not sorry, I enjoyed them, but there's things I probably never would have pursued if not for love. And I don't have any regrets. This is what I mean when I say that's how we should love the Lord. Do it because you can't help it. Love the Lord because it drives you crazy loving him so much, loving the Lord so much that you you can't help but thank him for this beautiful world, can't thank him enough for the beautiful people in your world, and can't thank him enough for his amazing, unprecedented, unparalleled, ridiculous grace. And on and on it goes. You love him so much that you are overwhelmed with compassion. And so naturally, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, it's going to spill over into the world that he loves so much that he gave everything to save it. And that's the point. Here's your practical application, and this is where I'll wrap it up today. Would you take a moment each day and that list that I asked you to make over the last couple of weeks, fill in a few more blanks. Now, instead of just having two columns, one for selfishness and one for selflessness, now go ahead and add on the selfish side these items on the to don't list. And add on the selflessness side the things on the to do list from 1 Corinthians 13. Just go ahead and add those to your list. And at night when you sit down to say your prayers and thank the Lord for another day on this earth, just ask yourself, how many times were you selfless? And in particular, ask yourself how many times you were patient and kind. How many times did you gladly bear the gospel? How many times did you believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things? according to the spirit and i'm not going to review the other list but you know if you have to you may have to check a few of those boxes each day but here's one thing i guarantee you being the methodical methodist enneagram five that i am if you do this consistently you will see yourself maturing in grace holiness and sanctification and you will reach perfect love let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen.